I-94 is presented by Pilsen Community Books. More information is at pilsencommunitybooks.org. I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome once again to another edition of I-94. Tonight we are live at the dial. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good evening. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hello, Jamie. And tonight we are joined by the poet, the author, the teacher, Rachel Galvin. Her new book is in my hand. You can't see it because this is radio, not television. It's called Elevated Threat Level. It's out from Green Lantern Press. Rachel, give her a big welcome. Thanks for joining us. We actually have three books. Um, News of War, and then also a book Rachel translated from Open Letters. Yeah, but this is the one I had in my hand, Jeremy. I know. This is the one that was I'm in my hand. I'm just sharing what we have, Jamie. Oh, man. <laughs> shows decals, shows already on, uh, off the rails. On uh, Open Letter, one of our favorite publishing That houses. is one of our favorite. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, I wanted to start off, uh, as Jeremy mentioned, actually, you, you do have a number of books out, including this book in translation. Most of your work revolves around the poetry of war, conflict, and civilian... I don't want to say reactions to it, but maybe the reaction of being a civilian who writes about war. Uh, and it's an interesting space, especially considering the fact that we are kind of caught in a perpetual war here in America. Uh, and you, you discuss in a number of notes in Elevated Threat Level that some of these poems came after uh, 9-11, which was obviously a traumatic uh, experience for Americans. Can you tell us a little bit about why you focused on this as a subject for your poetry to begin mm-hmm. with? Yeah, you know, in some ways, it was the only subject for me to write about. It seemed inevitable. Um, I felt that um, our lives were completely influenced by and pervaded by the experience of being a nation constantly at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. It became normalized. And so I was sort of seeing everything through that filter and struggling with this problem of how to write as a civilian writer Um, concerned about those wars, concerned about my complicity as a citizen uh, in our nation's actions, but being very removed from it in many ways. And so that was the set of problems that really pushed me to write these poems and to try to work through those issues in different ways. Um, And it's something that continues to compel me and impel me. I was watching an old Russian movie last night called The Cranes Are Flying, and it's about... It's like an allegory for Mother Russia after World War One, and I was thinking about um, your work while I was watching it because mm-hmm. the whole country was involved in the war. Like everyone lined up at the train station, you know, the men marched off to war. You know, the and and here it's a very, um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, interaction with the mm-hmm. people, the people of this country. Uh, you know, obviously. Mm-hmm kids from small towns and things like that but uh we haven't had a war where you know we're all involved and i think with when you're distant when mm. you you distance yourself from the conflict like that it becomes very easy to um not think about it or write it off yeah it's like part of the background noise right yeah i've worked with right. a lot of young, younger kids who this was probably three four years ago they were in their early 20s at the time and and the the young men would they would talk about how they were bored a lot and also talk about how it would be cool if war came stateside 
because it would be like an adventure. Sounds like some real bright guys you work with over yeah. here. Oak Park, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but they acted like there wasn't a war already going on, right. one to begin with. Right. And as if, you know, I mean, in some ways we have the luxury in this country to have that distance. We have the wealth. We have this, like, bubble of safety to think that things are distant when actually if you look at sort of the economics of it, you can never separate the war industry out from the rest of our daily lives. But it does take a, you know, like a deep dive into economics and and history and politics besides the, you know, this polarized world that we live in, right Mm. and left, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, to look at the, the... economic effects the i mean these men coming men and women that are coming back um with a lot of issues um i have a nephew that's a a, a vet from afghanistan why can i have some friends and these uh these people are coming back with a lot of problems and mm-hmm. um one of the things i always talk about you know vietnam when you were drafted for vietnam you did one tour some of these guys you know with the stop loss two three I, yeah. my nephew did four tours oh you know that's uh, my other nephew, oh, okay. yeah, my stepbrother's kid, mm-hmm. and um, you know that's too much. Yeah. That's too much yeah. for a, a eighteen, nineteen year old kid. I was in the Middle East for a year, and that was too much. You know, and I can't imagine like mm-hmm. what it would be like to go, you know, be there a year and then have you're not going home quite yet. We're going to tack on yeah. another year, um, and that whole stop loss thing. I think we're going to have a whole. Well, it's only one percent of the population that serve, but I think we're going to have a large. Uh, group of people that are really psychologically damaged um and we're starting to see the effects of that now uh did you spend any time in war zones overseas no i haven't okay did did you seek that out at all did you think about it did you well i was writing the book no i you know and i wrote these two books at the same time pretty much the the work of criticism news of war and then elevated threat level they sort of work braided together as no I was writing about uh, poets in the 30s and 40s thinking about the Spanish Civil War and World War II and some of these same questions as a way to kind of look at historical precedents for ways that writers today might write about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan so I was kind of looking for um, modes of writing and modes of thinking that might be models. And a lot of them kind of worked their way into the poems that I was writing. I can see that now. Well, it I took me a while to recognize that, that they were so imbricated. I saw in uh, your interview with the uh, LA Review of Books, yeah. uh, you, you mentioned Auden. Yeah. When, when did W.H. Auden write primarily? Because you, you mentioned in that interview that yeah. he... Uh, he had the same issue that the the, yeah. the yeah, preceding generation. Right. right. Although I have a funny story about him. He ended oh, up. Oh, I love funny stories. <laughs> <laughs> <That's a laughs> <crowd pleasers. laughs> I have lots of stories about W. H. Auden, but one in particular. So he wrote pretty much from the late twenties, like twenty-seven, twenty-eight, through the early sixties. Um, and you know, he was of the generation he worshipped Wilfred Owen, Wilfred Owen, and some of these other poets in World War One who were considered trench poets because they were literally writing poems while they were in the trenches fighting. Owen died in World War I. He did. He I'm did, a big yeah. fan of the World War I poets, too. Yeah. Yeah. They're, Incre- they're pretty stark. <laughs> oh, my God. So good. Yeah. And so Auden, next generation, just young enough not to have participated, and he and his friends felt like they missed out, like they had missed their chance to experience the defining moment of their generation and to have something to write about. So this kind of haunted him, and he struggled with it, and I think he did... 
he wrote all kinds of interesting work out of that struggle. But the funny story is that, um, so he did things like he was sent off to cover the Sino-Japanese War um, with Christopher Isherwood in uh, 1939 and wrote a very funny kind of campy book that's like a travelogue about that. Because he was with Chris Isherwood. Chris, Christopher <laughs> Isherwood, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where they basically are trying to prove through the whole thing that they're like the least equipped people to be doing this and to be you know, acting as war reporters. So he wrote that, he wrote some other things. But then the funny story is that uh, after the war, he had immigrated to America in 39. He was born in England, um, came in 39, um, and he was asked by the US military, and I can't figure out how anyone came upon the idea of calling him up to do this, but they made him a major, and they flew him over to Germany to collect oral histories um, uh, about people's experiences of being bombed by the US military. So he was part of the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey and, oh, wow. yeah, and collected reams of material. And he had a contract to publish a book about it. And when he came back, he just scrapped it. It was like, I can't write about this. It was terrible. It was horrible. Um, oh, it was never published? No. It was in his He wrote archives? like a couple poems, but it's really very little. Yeah. Did you find all this stuff in his archives or something? Um, no, I wasn't able to see that material. Um, but James Stern, who he was supposed to collaborate with, did publish some of it. So you can, you can read that and access it. So, you know, he kind of quipped that he was the first major poet to fly across the Atlantic since they'd made him a major. And, you know. <laughs> I, I wonder if they chose him because of the mass observation work that was going on in England at the time. That was actually something I wanted to bring up, but later. Mm. So if we could, let's put a pin in that and come back to it. Because... One of the things that struck me about your book, and I'm wondering if the two guys with me had the same reaction. I grew up in a different country. I grew up actually in Scotland. And my family um, are all military until pretty much my generation, mm -hmm. my father's generation. Uh, grandfather fought in, great-grandfather, real grandfather fought in World War I. Uh, my uncles fought in World War II. Mm -hmm. And my family emigrated over here by signing to fight in Vietnam. Okay. So Scotland was not exactly a fun place at the time. Uh, kind of the sick man of Europe at that point. One of the things that struck me reading kind of between the lines of the poems was the separation of the American civilian from the military mm -hmm. and the celebration of militarism, which does not exist in Scotland, uh, Germany, France. Mm -hmm. There's a real suspicion of overweening patriotism. Um, some of the displays mm -hmm. that we see on uh, a baseball diamond would be considered proto-Nazi, mm. where I come from. And I, I got the sense that that was kind of what you were getting at, but I mm -hmm. didn't know if that was my own experience kind of impressing on that. Mm -hmm. So I just wondered if you could speak a little bit yeah. to that, because that was my reaction to some of the work. And I know, you know, Jeremy and Mike might have a, a completely different reaction than I am just because of my background. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely, I think you're picking up on something that I was trying to work through in the book and to think about, um, you know, in terms of, and this sort of gets back to your question, too, about my own experiences. I have not lived in a war zone, but both of my grandfathers fought in World War II. They didn't know each other, they, but they ended up in the same battalion, which is kind of strange. Um, they were both wounded have relatives who served in the military. So it's something that's sort of present for me in, a, in an immediate way. Um, but And so there's a poem, uh, one of the last poems in the book, it's a sonnet um, called After the War, is actually for my grandfather who just passed away two years ago, where I was kind of trying to think about um, 
his experiences in the war and what that, what that means for me as part of our family history and, and part of my own way of thinking about my relationship to wars today as well. Um, but it's a complicated thing. It's muddled. It's fraught. Um, I don't think there's a clear answer. And you're quite right to say that there's a very complicated relationship in the U.S. Um, between citizens and the military. It's very different from the Vietnam when anyone could be drafted and forced to go to war, right? And so today, uh, the demographics of people who go to war are, 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 are different from Vietnam when it was everybody. Everyone was kind of um, subject to that. In some ways, but also, yeah. you know, if you were in college, you didn't go to war. Right. So that's why a lot of vets hate hippies because they were like these mid upper middle class kids that didn't have to right. fight the war and then they were protesting the war that these poor kids had to go fight. Yeah. Um, which, uh, since we are talking about Vietnam, I wanted to ask you, so Jamie and Mike actually did not get a hold of this book. I hogged it. You kept it to yourself. Hogged yeah, it. yeah. Um, Jamie also read an entire other book by another Rachel. Yes. And we kept deleting this, thinking yes. that this Rachel was going to be our Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, we Rachels stick together. Yeah. So, it was yeah. a good book, by the way. It was a good book. Uh, yeah. This is, uh, you know. We'll see her here next month. Um, our, <laughs> our budget's really huge, so we, uh, you know. We communicate by text, and, uh, you know, sometimes there's uh, some mix-ups. But, you know, the question that, and this, tell me if I'm wrong, but the question yeah. you're asking in here is, can civilians write about war? Exactly. Uh, That's the key thing. Yeah. My opinion, yes. I, mm -hmm. I think anyone can write about something that they're uh, passionate about. Yeah. Um, and I guess passionate, so can you be passionate about war? I don't know. That seems yeah. like a mm -hmm. weird description yeah. who cares you right? have all who kinds of weird about, interests yeah. like that well, I mean, yeah, you can be passionate totally about conflict i mean i think george yeah. orwell is a great example of somebody oh, who wrote about yeah. conflict and wrote about yep. war and and yep. served sort of in the imperial army yeah well he mm. was trying to fight the spanish civil war i believe oh. not very successfully because he was kind of a bum and ham-handed but a, br a brilliant yeah. writer you know yeah. what i mean but yeah. the question I wanted, have you ever read Dispatches by Michael Hur? He was a photographer oh, yeah. in Vietnam. I have that book on my shelf. I have not read it. I, I recommend that anyone listens to the show read that book. Hmm. It's phenomenal. And he was a non-combatant, although he was in yeah. combat, I guess. I, I, he was a photographer. And um, a lot of the, um, there's a lot of stories from that book that you'll see in Apocalypse Now and Full mm -hmm. Metal Jacket because people yanked them because they're so crazy. And, yeah. he, and uh, he was over there with Errol Flynn's son. Oh, wow. You know, taking photos. And that book, um, Mike was saying, you know, that I have weird interests, which is true. But I've always been really, even since I was a kid, fascinated with, like, Vietnam and Vietnam literature. When I read that book, it blew mm -hmm. my mind. And then mm -hmm. to this day, it's still uh, one of my favorite books of all time. And it's written mm -hmm. by a non-combatant although he was in a war zone. Um, but I think, you know, from reading um, your book and just from my experience, I'm always skeptical when people say you can't write about something. Mm. Um, I think if you have a passion for something, um, that you should be able to write about it, especially mm. um, if it's poetic or if it's fiction. If it's fiction, you should be able to write about anything you want, I think. Mm. Um, and we've had a lot of conversations on this show about cultural appropriation and Rebecca Mackay comes to mind, who was sitting right, right here. Right, right. Yeah. 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 And, um, mm. you know, and I, I, I know Mike and I and Jamie and I, we all kind of think, like, well, if it's fiction, not kind of, but we think, you know, if it's fiction. And, and for me, poems, mm. you know, um, if you're passionate about it, you can write about it. And I, I, I thought the, the question you asked was interesting. And I was wondering if you wanted to just kind of talk about 
maybe some of the poets in here and mm -hmm. um, why you decided to write this book. Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for reading it. No problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah we've got to read um, it next, but you got to hand it over. <laughs> So I mentioned Auden, who appears in the book. He actually gets two chapters. Everybody else gets one, but there was just so much to say about him. Um, and uh, actually, so he, like Orwell, went to try to lend a hand during the Spanish Civil War, but he never got to drive an ambulance or be a stretcher bearer the way he wanted to. Um, like he, Hemingway? He was Wasn't Hemingway an ambulance driver? He was, yeah. yeah. Auden's oh, friends said that that was a mercy because he was such a terrible driver that like the wounded would have been in terrible hands. I remember he was a terrible <laughs> shot too, wasn't he? Wasn't he like a legendarily poor shot? I don't know. I, th I thought he was like a, a really awful. Like, I remember reading something as a kid about Auden like trying to shoot grouse on an estate and missing everything and like hitting people. That sounds right. So that yeah. Sounds like, yeah, yeah. So so he ended up getting. They put him to work in a propaganda office and then he like tried to rewrite the president's speeches and got in trouble and they like kicked him out and that was the end of it. So he didn't really, <laughs> so he didn't exactly, you know, he tried to volunteer for the cause, but to, to limited success. Um, but one of the other figures in the book who's a Peruvian poet, Cesar Vallejo, um, so the Thank first... Thank you for the pronunciation. Sure. We're slaughtered pronunciations on the shows. So. He, uh, so he, the first chapter after the introduction is dedicated to him. And something interesting about Vallejo is that he's now thought of as one of the great poets of the 20th century in Latin America, just one of the absolute greats. Um, but when he was alive, he was really just barely eking out a living writing journalism. So he wrote for 38 different periodicals at the same time in Latin America and Europe and just was constantly writing articles, writing articles, trying to make a living. He was hungry. He was ill. Um, he was so poor that he tried to like not walk too much to wear the leather off the bottoms of his shoes. Um, and uh, he, when he died, he left 95 brilliant poems that were published posthumously that kind of made his legacy. Dead young, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see, he died in 38. He would have been, I'm trying to do the math, um, like 54. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, so anyway, so what's interesting about Vallejo, and one of the things I'm looking at in this book is kind of the connection of journalism and poetry and how many of the poets who had this kind of ethical question that I was describing earlier with relationship to Auden and how he viewed Wilfred, Wilfred Owen was the sense of inadequacy or like an inability to write about war because they hadn't experienced with their own flesh what it meant to be in combat. Um, so many poets turned to journalism, to reporters who were embedded to different extents as a kind of way for thinking about how to write about war, how to put war into words. Um, and Vallejo, as a working journalist, um, did go to the Spanish Civil War and did see things. Um, and so he wrote a number of uh, newspaper articles about the Spanish Civil War, as well as an incredible sequence of poems about it. And so one of the things I do in the book is to look at how his newspaper writing affected his poetry and vice versa and what the relationship is between him between them as he was trying to work through these questions do you want to talk about gertrude stein a little bit Always. she comes up on the show yes. all the time so. i'm sure Liesl olsen mentioned yes. gertrude yeah, stein yeah, yes it was a yeah. big, big deep dive on, on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, that's um, a place where we connect yeah i'm embarrassed to admit this but i I read some segments of Gertrude Stein because I was an English lit major. I've never read one of her books. In fact, I was kind of looking over there while we were talking because I'm going to grab one tonight. But can you just, because she had an influence on Chicago. Yeah. And uh, can you want to talk a little bit about uh, her and from your book, yep. News of War? Yep. 
So Stein is another person who, like Auden, traveled to another country and then stayed there. So she left um, the U.S. and ended up living in France for the last like three or four decades of her life, and she died there. Um, and you know, she was really heralded as the kind of what are they? They called her in the twenties the high priestess of illegibility. Um, <laughs> she was <laughs> really cryptic, really difficult, really challenging. She still is today when we read her. You know, and people pick her up. By the way, one of my um, um, favorite ways to get into a book by Stein is to read it out loud because okay. you start to hear the repetitions, you hear the resonances. It's like very physical in a certain I way. Do that to me. I'll read it to Mike. <laughs> It'll be a special episode. Yeah, <laughs> a special episode. <laughs> read to Mike. Richard Stein out loud. Yeah. Boy, then, our numbers are dropping already. Uh, it's it's not a lie though. I do read to well, him I'm glad yeah. you I'm glad you brought that up about journalism and poetry because yeah. the thing that was most striking to me about elevated threat level was the juxtaposition of of the, those uh newspaper clippings yeah clippings. they're like they're yeah. like little dispatches kind yeah. of right. and the mottos of the newspapers too oh oh yeah the yeah, uh the uh like the, the eulogy for yeah. for yeah. american newspapers yeah. the los but angeles tribune's uh, motto is really great a clean newsy newspaper that's that's <laughs> well, well we're LA on, tribune well we're on this let's talk about gutenberg nation because that yeah. was one of the uh and in your footnotes in the back, um, you talk about, uh, let's see. <clears throat> there was, in 1941, there were 12,000 newspapers in the uh, United States, you say. And uh, there's a quote in here that's absolutely phenomenal. Um, Each individual in a democracy must learn to get the facts, study the facts, and make up his own mind and act. No one should escape this responsibility. Oh, and the first, I missed the first sentence, never before in all our history yeah. was ignoring and distorting the news so dangerous. <laughs> uh, they might have changed their mind if they lived to 2019, but... And uh, that year was 1941, just to insert that, right? That was from 1941. So, yeah. 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 So it's been going on <laughs> forever, apparently. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. just like the web, they were labor newspapers and they're right-wing newspapers and left, you know, yeah. left-leaning newspapers and social... My grandfather actually... Uh, was a union activist in Detroit. He uh, edited the first socialist newspaper in Detroit. That's He's awesome. a big union guy. And, um, but I thought, you know, you went through and you listed all these newspapers that have, are no longer in their mottos, and it, it, that really, um, really struck me as hmm. it's a great loss for uh, for journalism. Um, it's a yeah. great loss for our country as a whole. Um, and I was wondering if you guys wanted to touch on that. Maybe we could read a couple of the... Uh, sure. Uh, the... What's the word? The I'm mottos. Reading? Yes, yeah. mottos. The mottos My favorite is yeah. the last one. For, the, for those of you guys who don't know what a newspaper motto is, on the, on the front page, this is the old newspaper hack chiming in here. So uh, the New York Times' famous motto is all the news that's fit to print. And oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, newspapers used to advertise their political leanings or they used to advertise... Um, kind of what they wanted their newspaper to be. And the, the Tribune was really interesting because they, the LA Tribune, a clean, newsy newspaper, perfect for the home, they were actually a Christian newspaper. Was that the, was that the motto? Yes, it was. Uh, they, the LA Tribune at the time was, was, a, was a Christian newspaper fit for the Sabbath. It was a Sunday paper that came out, and it was guaranteed to be clean for all people. And in Los Angeles at that time, um, please don't ask me how I know this off the top of my head, but I do, yeah, had seven daily newspapers, and uh, it was quite a... a um, a contest 
And then there was a weekly insert called the Grizzly Bear that went into a number of these newspapers, but only the ones that it deemed to be um, Christian or correct. And the LA Tribune was one of them. The LA Times was not. The LA Times was looked upon as the yellow journalism of the time in that city. And of course, this is ironic because the Times, which is now part of the Tribune syndicate here in the city, um, has become one of the preeminent West Coast newspapers. And a lot of the other newspapers have fallen by the wayside. Mm -hmm. But if you looked at the, the mottos of um, papers like the Chicago Defender, they would switch their motto up depending on the time. In 1919, at the time of the Chicago riots, it was stay off the streets, let the law defend you. That was the Chicago wow. Defender's motto. Wow. wow. Okay, which is kind of amazing. Do you know the Tribune or Sun-Times off the top of your head? The Tribunes? Yeah, or Sun-Times. The, the Sun-Times is the hardest working newspaper in America. Oh, that's still on there, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Uh, the Tribune, I don't <laughs> believe, has a motto anymore. It was the Republican newspaper, so it used to. I mean, the Washington Post just got a motto, that's democracy yep. dies in yep. darkness, yeah. um, which is a little urgent if you ask me. But, um, but not well, covers Dixie like the do. <laughs> uh, that was the Mississippi something. That's right. That's yeah, right. it's in here. Yeah. Yeah. But the yeah. Post, the like, Post wow, took um, democracy dies in darkness in January 2017. Right. That was, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it was, that was, it was a nice, nice yeah. little statement there. Liked by many, cussed by some, and read yeah. by them all. That's that's a fantastic The one. only newspaper <laughs> in the world gives a damn about Yarrington was, was my personal... <laughs> favorite. Not having been to Yarrington, I, I can't comment on Yarrington's <laughs> politics. But one what, what of the things that is interesting, and, and uh, you know, there were so many small newspapers in American cities. The major newspapers in, in the United States still survive. You know, the, one of the things we've kind of forgotten about is there, there still is a Boston Globe, there's still a Trib. The Sun-Times may be greatly reduced. There's no Chicago News. What's actually the really... Defender's gone. Defender uh, print, is... Print. print Defender's gone. Uh -huh. The reader may follow it. Who knows? Um, what has really been lost is the local small newspapers. Yeah. You know, you used to have a, a lot of uh, a, a daily or, or several times a week newspapers that catered to very specific communities. And mm -hmm. down where, where Lumpen Radio is broadcast from, uh, the Chicago, uh, the Bridgeport News, used to be a three times a week newspaper with real ads and mm -hmm. it was a 25 page newspaper. Now it's a shopping weekly that lands on your mm -hmm. doorstep and has a note from the alderman and you throw it in your trash. Yeah. That that shows you, unfortunately, the the decline of both engagement with mm. local goings on right. on the part of everybody, but also the tremendous attrition that we've seen because of the costs of printing and yeah. because of the substitution of other media and the internet. So yeah, and you know that that was one of my main concerns in the book. There's sort of a like multiple eulogies happening. One is for the the death of the newspaper. You know, as we've been just watching them shutter their doors over the past 10, 15 years, um, which, I, which I feel is a real loss for, for the reasons that you just said. Um, and also the safety of journalists, the journalists around the world, right, doing really difficult work and work that puts them in the line of fire in war zones, um, you know, also in the line of fire in terms of political interests. So there's some mention of that in, in some of the poems as well. Um, and uh, I wanted to kind of <laughs> write some kind of homage, in a way, to, to people who are doing this really difficult work to get us information about what's going on in the world. You know, at this point, as our engineer reminds us, we do have to take a break and remind folks of the folks that make this station possible. Can I read one more motto? You can read one more motto, and then we had to go to break. <laughs> All right. If you don't want it printed, don't let it happen. With that, <laughs> let's give a big round of applause to Rachel Galvin. We'll be right back after the break. Yeah. <laughs>
If you enjoy listening to I-94 and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, please consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back to I-94 Live at the Dial. My name, again, is Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Hello. And Mr. Michael Sack. Here. You didn't bring your fur coat, Mike. I'm really disappointed. Or my cigar. Very or my bad, mouth. very bad. Today, we're joined by the poet, Rachel Galvin. Please give her a big round of applause. <laughs> All right. Hey, before the break, we were talking about, um, we are talking about a lot of things, but immediately we were talking about... Cover death of journalism and uh, the fact that you've kind of given a eulogy for it in the book and there is a lot to cover and one of the things that we touched upon briefly at the start of the show that I said let's put a pin in and come back to was when you were discussing uh, W.H. Auden's work for the uh, United States military going over and interviewing people Mm -hmm. uh, the effects of bombing in Germany there was a large project uh, called the Mass Observation Project which was a civilian based um, uh, almost oral reportage Uh, that was uh, done over many decades, uh, primarily in England, but also in mm-hmm. Scotland, I believe in Wales and Ireland, uh, where people would interview their neighbors or keep diaries and observe their goings-on. And it was a very unique project. The, the aim of the project was to engage civilians in making a new kind of media. Mm-hmm. But it was also a kind of subtle psychological experiment in a way. It mm. was a way to get... Uh, civilians, in a sense, if you have a more sinister view, to spy on each other. Right. Uh, the mass observation diaries have been released uh, steadily now over the last few years, and they're actually very fascinating as pieces of social history. Mm-hmm. But one of the main things that the mass observation diaries talk about is the hardship of war, mm-hmm. and particularly the hardship following uh, World War II, mm-hmm. because that was the era they were in. And reading your book and, and looking at the kind of um, struggle of a civilian writing about war. I wondered if you had, first of all, done any investigation of that project because they, they talk in, in very plain terms, it's not poetry, it's not fiction, mm. about the kind of aftermath of conflict, the emotions of conflict, the hardship of it, in a way that I think is very unusual and, and mm-hmm. perhaps unprecedented mm-hmm. and, and may kind of go to some of the questions that you had in, mm-hmm. in approaching this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's an absolutely fascinating archive. It's not one that I ended up writing about in my scholarly work, but I am familiar with it. Um, and it's an interesting kind of um, pivot um, in social consciousness at that moment toward an interest in the empirical and the everyday and the ordinary, right, and people's daily lives, and sort of also taking oral histories and compiling information about people's daily, li- daily lives um, and converting them into data, right, as something that we can analyze and make sense of. So it seems to me that it's a moment in which the world is trying to reckon with what's going on and what's just happened and to make sense of human nature in a sense, right? Um, And so you see the rise of psychology and sociology and mass observation collecting these kind of massive troves of information about about daily uh, daily living. Um, So yeah, no, I mean, I find that really fascinating and that's an interesting moment, I think, uh, that we can sort of look back to from our current preoccupations with data about uh, and turning our lives into these quantifiable chunks of um, conveyable um, information. Um, but, uh, but it's not something I ended up writing about in the book necessarily. Question that I yeah. missed asking you, uh, what were we talking about earlier? Uh, oh, Jeremy was talking about whether or not it was, you know, quote unquote appropriate for a civilian to write about, um, 
about war experiences. I, I was just wondering if you caught any flack from professionals you know, or no. But or this is like this is definitely like a else. question of our moment that everyone's talking about. I really appreciated what you said about that. That if you have this kind of concern or care, that in the world of the imagination. You should be able to write something. But it's, you know, it's, it's difficult territory. And I've gotten a lot of questions after this book about how to extrapolate some of these points I make to these debates about appropriation that are going on today. Um, and it's not something I address in the book. And, and I think there's a kind of difficult balance that has to be reached between like an ethical obligation to speak and to say something if you see something going on, right? To, to articulate it. And then also to have respect for other people's experiences, not to profit from them, right? Not to appropriate them. Um, so it's, it's a complicated territory to navigate. Um, but I have not received any flack, just yet. Yeah. No, yeah. We usually ask that question. Um, we had uh, Rebecca Mackay, and she yeah. wrote the book about the AIDS crisis in Chicago, and we asked the same question. Mm. Uh, we got to talk about wars I've seen. Um, yeah. This is like, oh, yeah, we were going to talk about this. Yeah, uh, took a left right turn. before the yep. break. Um, you want to tell us about how this book came to be? So you were talking mm -hmm. about Auden, who went over as a major to talk to people that had been bombed. And then now Stein did something yep. similar, correct? Not exactly. Um, so what happened was she was living with her life partner, Alice B. Toklas, in France. And the war began, and they were in occupied territory. And, uh, and they decided to stay there, even though they were Jewish lesbians who were obviously at risk. And their friends and family were trying to get them out and trying to smuggle them to Switzerland, and they just decided to stay. Um, and so actually... That is a little different than Auden's story. You're yeah. absolutely correct. So. Yeah. <laughs> so she was living Wait, in a war zone. <laughs> <laughs> That's me, like, terrible at uh, making things, separating things. I don't know. Parsing. <laughs> yes, parsing. <laughs> please Sorry, go ahead. Please so, please yeah, so, uh, so they were living under Vichy and they were forced to quarter Nazi soldiers in their home. They were completely terrified by this, obviously. Um, and interestingly, Stein, you know, she was writing this book called Wars I Have Seen, which I'll say something about. And she has, this, she has really terrible handwriting. I've read through her manuscripts. Um, and she wouldn't let Alice B. Toklas type up her manuscripts the way she usually did. They had this, like, collaborative process because she was afraid of the Nazi soldiers reading the manuscript. Um, and there was sort of because her handwriting is bad, they, could, they couldn't read it. Is that the yes? Okay. That was like keeping it safe with the bad handwriting. Um, uh, so Stein's a complicated figure. She's been criticized for being in favor of the Vichy regime when it first began, which is true. And then she became disillusioned with it and saw what was going on and kind of changed her mind. So some of the end of the book, she writes in favor of the resistance. But mm. that's a whole other complicated. Stein's politics, I could talk about all day. It's a a complicated situation. So, but the way that I think what you're referring to is that in this book, Wars I Have Seen, she collects stories from her neighbors. Yes, that's like oral history. That was kind, kind of, of a comparison. Was yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're like dated entries. So it's like a, it's sort of, they didn't have newspapers. Newspapers right. couldn't circulate. Nothing was circulating at the time. So she was writing this kind of what I call an anti newspaper um, that was based on her neighbors' and friends' experiences rather than like national news and kind of recording it in this book, Wars I Have Seen. Well, the point you bring up is important, too. You said Gertrude Stein's politics were complicated. Yeah. 
and I think we live in this time where everyone's like left or right or you know liberal or conservative. I think everyone's politics can be not everyone. Some people are just certainly not as repound. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you uh, pay attention, they exactly. almost have to be complicated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, if if you live your life and you're and you're engaged with what's going on in the world, politics are complicated. You yeah. know, and yeah. I just I th I think that's just an important statement that you made because yeah. everything's so polarized and put into compartments now. And I, yeah. I, my, I'll give you an example. My dad's a union electrician, staunch Democrat. He is not a liberal. <laughs> like, he's far yeah. from it. And I don't mean, like, social issues, but, like, he's just, he's, like, his way. You know, he's mm. 80 years old, and he's not, you know, he's not a social justice warrior. And, um, and I think we just have this compartmentalizing that yeah. we do now, which is, it, it, it's, it's a disservice to everyone, just, mm. like, the loss of, uh, loss of the media. Do you think your dad's listening to this show? I doubt it. No. <laughs> no. My mom is. Yeah. My mom is too. All our moms. Hello listen. to your mom. Um, <laughs> mom is. My niece is here. My my uh, my sister in law is probably maybe listening. Maybe. But yeah, the, my family is not a big I ninety four listening group. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> not all radios for them. Didn't didn't Gertrude Stein? I remember Gertrude Stein at the middle of the Vichy. Yeah. started playing tricks on the Nazis that she was boarding, like feeding them artichokes and not telling them how to eat them. So she would serve them whole artichokes that weren't trimmed, and they wouldn't know how to I've eat them. I've had that trick played on me. Well, <laughs> Gertrude Stein. She, <laughs> I, I remember, Stein. I remember reading in a, in a book that that was, that was one of the ways she, she got back at them because they, were very, they started to become very uh, un, unpleasant to her and, and yeah. Ms. Toklas. Um, Rachel, if it's if it's too much, no sweat. But I, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. Yeah. There's we were talking about Cesar Vallejo yeah. earlier, and there's a poem in full, short one, a little one, in elevated threat level. Yeah. Could you read it? Yeah. And do and just do a quick in translation. In Spanish and in English. Yeah. Yeah, it's right in the beginning. I think it's the second one. Yeah. It's my, just kind of an epigraph. Thank you. That's super. My uh, sister's a Spanish teacher. And ah. All right. Wanna, this one goes out for see. her. So this is actually. Um, this if is not the whole poem, it's an excerpt. Okay. But, um, uh, and it's, the poem is called Un hombre pasa con un pan al hombro, which means a man passes with a loaf of bread on his shoulder, but they call it. Um, un hombre pasa con un pan al hombro. Voy a escribir después sobre mi doble. Otro busca en el fango huesos, cáscaras. ¿Cómo escribir después del infinito? Un albañil cae de un techo, muere y ya no almuerza. Innovar luego el tropo, la metáfora. A man passes with a loaf of bread on his shoulder. Shall I afterwards write about my double? Another rakes in the mud for bones and husks. Can I later on write about infinity? A mason falls from a roof, dies before lunch. How can I renew, after that, the trope, the metaphor? And that's translated by Valentino Gianuzzi and Michael Smith, the Irish poet okay. and the Peruvian poet. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I just want to let you know I promised her before the show she wouldn't have to do any reading. That's so true. You did. That you line. did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. We but it wasn't my poem. So <laughs> I told you we communicate really well. So. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, who? <laughs> what was your there interest two, in that? Yeah. There were two posts that reminded me of it. One is is Fernando Pessoa. 
mm-hmm. but there's been a huge renewed interest in it. And the other yeah. is James Tate. Did, oh, have you yeah. ever read any James yep, Tate? A lot of your yep. poetry reminded me of James yeah. Tate. Well, I would say that James Tate's been influenced by Vallejo, actually, and okay. translations of Vallejo that were published in the 50s, 60s. Yeah. You guys yeah. ever read James Tate? He, he passed away last year. He's, he's, did you give me a book yeah. of poems? Yeah, 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 we did read it. Yeah. yeah. I did read it. Yeah, I love Vallejo. Love, love, love. Everyone listening should go out and read Vallejo, either in the Spanish Is or in the translation. Stuff translated? By yeah, it's all completely translated. He, yep. he wrote novels too. Yeah, he wrote only one novel. Mm-hmm. He wrote Tungsten, one novel. the one yeah, called that's Tungsten. Right. That is yeah. a, did you read that? No, no, no. I looked up. What he wrote is, is it about good? minor. It's it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend the poetry. I'm yeah. more of a novel guy than a poetry yeah. guy, but I'll check them out. Yeah, it's yeah. about minors. Oh, okay. Yeah, minors or M I N E R S. M I N E R S. This is reading. Just check it here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, we were talking about W H Auden and Christopher Isherwood. I mean, we could go anywhere here. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> One thing I did want to ask you about, um, before we get too far into the show, because we are running a little short on time, poetry, um, the Poetry Foundation here in Chicago, which you know mm-hmm. has given you a lot of love and you know you work with, has undergone a revitalization mm-hmm. uh, thanks to a large dump truck full of money that pulled mm-hmm. up to that foundation and uh, dumped all over it. And God bless them. Poetry, though, I think has occupied a declining place in, I don't want to say importance necessarily, mm. but certainly in the public eye. And I mm. wonder if you could talk a little bit about where you think published poetry, which is now becoming increasingly rare. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing, seeing a book like this is rare. Like the last poetry book that I think was sent to us was a copy of, uh, I think, Baby I'm Gone, which is the kind of noir poems um, that, it, was it Claire McDermott did? We had a viewing. We did have a oh, viewing, and yeah, EVM, nice. of course, is done. But yeah. it's, it's becoming increasingly rare to see. Yeah poetry in the wild, so to speak. A lot of chapbooks, <laughs> a lot of small stuff, but but very, very few things in the yeah. wild. A lot of dirty speak. looks from the poets in the room, James. Well, you know, there's, there's I can take them all. Now, I just yeah. wonder, I wonder if you yeah. can speak to that a little bit, because yeah. I, I think the internet has changed some of that. I, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot more places where authors are putting things like that, and I think there's yeah. a lot more non-traditional poetry that frankly is, is being used in popular music more than it yeah. ever was. Well, that's, those are some things I, w- I would start by saying, which is that on the one hand, I think that the internet, yes, it's sort of broken up the book and like singular, single poems circulate it freely in the wild, as you say. But I think that's a good thing. Um, people are more likely to post a poem online, send a link, tweet it, you know, share it. Um, uh, and, and that's exciting. I think that's a kind of vivaciousness for poetry. I think poetry slams, poetry readings still get hordes of people showing up. Um, so I don't, you know, I really don't, I'm, I don't think that poetry is in decline right now. I think really exciting things are, are happening in the world of poetry. Um, and Eve Ewing, I'm sure, had a lot of great things to say about what she's doing with poetry in Chicago. Um, um, she had a lot of things to say about Marvel Comics, actually. Oh, yeah, right on. <laughs> and also Meta World Peace. Meta World Peace. Yes. Yeah. He's yeah. a basketball player. Yeah. I was the only one that knew who he was. At That's not true. Well, well, besides Jamie and Mike, but I mentioned that poem. She's like, no one talks about that one. <laughs> anyway. You know, the other thing is that it's sort of like, it's it's sort of a, a trope that people lament the decline of poetry. And this has been happening for hundreds of years. People are saying, oh, my God, poets, poetry is dying. It's the death of poetry. Well, they and even so, say that about the novel, too. And also. Uh, clearly, the novel is not dying. As we're surrounded yeah. by all these beautiful books in this beautiful space. So some yeah. of the novels we've been sent this year are pretty bad. So, That's true. You know. But there's a lot of good stuff, too. So. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it maybe that the poets <laughs> themselves aren't, don't take up as 
larger light in the in the in the culture is is that what it is that's kind of what I was actually getting at. I think yeah. that, you know, I, I I did get the sense that you used to, when, when somebody was named the Poet Laureate or, or when yeah, no there idea was an important event. You, know, you mentioned in your own book, you say, you know, after 9-11, uh, was it September 1st, 1939, yeah. was, was referenced over and over again. And I don't necessarily see that same connection between the world at large mm-hmm. and the world of poetry as I think there once was. T.S. Eliot, you know, when The Wasteland came out, that was writ- read by a mainstream audience. That was mm. not something that just went to English schools or weird nerds who run book shows on radio and, and bookstores, okay? Like, there was a mainstreaming of it. And I do think there's a different sort of poetry that has now been mm-hmm. taken over by popular music. I mean, obviously, hip-hop culture has really embraced poetry, especially slam poetry. So, for sure, for sure. Know, uh, I want no, to sure. be careful about that. Yeah, but. and uh, hip-hop you know, retains meter and rhyme to totally brilliant effect um, in ways that I would argue are absolutely poetic. Um, uh, And many other people have argued are poetic. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think um, the Poet Laureate does still occupy a a position in the public eye. I think it was a big deal when Juan Felipe Herrera became Poet Laureate a couple of years ago, the first Chicano uh, son of migrant workers to be U.S. Poet Laureate, one of the very few poets of color to be Poet Laureate. Um, and, you know, he did he did a lot to kind of get out and spread the word about poetry. Tracy K. Smith, also more recent Poet Laureate, um, African-American, totally brilliant writer, who's also been doing quite a lot um, with a new NPR show that uh, called The Slowdown, where she reads poems. It's like a four-minute segment. It's really terrific. Um, so I think there's ways in which poetry is circulating, and there's certain people who are great ambassadors for poetry but also like the Poetry Out Loud program, getting kids in high school to memorize poems and perform them. Um, we had, uh, do you remember when Jack Perlutsky was the poet laureate, he's a children's poet? Hmm. Do you remember that? No. It was like, I want to say roughly 15 years ago, but my kids at the, li- I, I'm a librarian, and we brought kids down to the Poetry Foundation when it was over, like by the Latin school, wasn't it over there back in the day? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and uh, they memorized his mm-hmm. uh is there a children's poet laureate and then a poet laureate not that i know of okay so he yeah. was poet laureate yeah okay. and so my kids came down and they mm. memorized his poems there is okay there is what's the is chicago there, there is a children's <laughs> poet okay yeah what's the chicago kids group called they 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 go read poetry at Koval might lead the group oh, uh, yeah yeah oh, yeah right. yeah, yeah exactly exactly yeah pretty outstanding really great mm-hmm. And the Poetry Foundation and, you know, Poetry mm-hmm. Society and other kinds of organizations that have been funded, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. That have, yeah. Funded very well. Yep. Yeah. 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 Giving us a lot of love. Yeah. Yep. That's good. <laughs> Poets need it. I wanted to get to decals before oh, yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Rachel's got a plethora of writing, and this is a book she translated um, for uh, Open Letter. You want to talk a little? I'm terrible pronunciation. Sure. Oliverio Girondo. Say it again. Girondo. Rondo. Yeah, you got okay. it. You got it. Yep, he's from Argentina. You want to talk a little bit about this book and how you ended up translating? Sure. Yeah, and I, I translated it with a collaborator named Harris Feinsod, who also lives here in Chicago and teaches at Northwestern University. Um, and we had a conversation some years ago about how we both wanted to translate these early books of this avant-garde Argentine poet. Um, and then we decided to throw our lot together and do it together since um, he had something of a draft done at that how point. How does that work? 
collaborating? Well, like, so I'll he take had. One, you take one, or we'll both do the. Yeah, whole thing he had a good portion it. of it translated, okay. um, and uh, which he'd done with a friend, and he sent it to me, and I kind of reworked it, and then finished the manuscript and sent it to him, and then every chance we could, we'd get together and kind of go over every line and um, read it out loud and talk about it. So he done those a really fun kind of cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan avant-garde poet of the, um, these two books were from 1922 and 1925. And also illustrated, and beautifully illustrated, illustrated by and the author yeah, with yeah, these beautiful watercolors. That was something we were really excited about, um, being able to include them. It just makes a difference. And we were like really careful so that the watercolors appear precisely where he had had them in the first edition. Um, which I believe were never reproduced in color after the first edition oh, in 22. Okay. So this kind sweet. of a special I've never thing. seen another open letter book that had illustrations. Yeah. yeah. It's a really nice copy. Yeah. Um, and so they're, they're very much city poems in a way, and they're travel poems, and they're about the experience of suddenly living in a modern city, so electricity is new and streetcars are new. Um, so it's very much Is it all the, Buenos Aires? You know, there's a lot in Buenos Aires, and then he travels. So some poems are based in Italy and France and Africa, other places. Yeah. Since you're talking about city poetry, yes. even though Jamie said you wouldn't be asked to read, would you mind reading <laughs> Pedestrian? I do! Yeah, All you, the rules are being thrown to the wind. you don't want to read it. Showing off the rail in the first two okay. minutes, Rachel. Yeah. Uh, this was one of the poems that really stood out for me in the book. And, and when you're talking about city life, this one really... Uh, but if you can cool. read it, yeah. if you, you want, want to read it in Spanish and English, sure. it's totally up to you. Yeah, no, I'm happy to do that. Are you, are you sure? Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, do we have time? Is you got cool? time. Okay. Pedestre. En el fondo de la calle, un edificio público aspira el mal olor de la ciudad. Las sombras se quiebran, el espinazo en los umbrales, se acuestan para fornicar en la vereda. Con un brazo prendido a la pared, un farol apagado, tiene la visión convexa de la gente que pasa en automóvil. Las miradas de los transeúntes ensucian las cosas que exhiben en los escaparates, adelgazan las piernas que cuelgan bajo las capotas de las victorias. Junto al cordón de la vereda, un kiosco acaba de tragarse una mujer. Pasa una inglesa idéntica a un farol. Un tranvía que es un colegio sobre ruedas. Un perro fracasado con ojos de prostituta que nos da vergüenza mirarlo y dejarlo pasar. De repente, el vigilante de la esquina detiene de un golpe de batuta todos los estremecimientos de la ciudad para que se oiga en un solo susurro el susurro de todos los senos a rozarse. Buenos Aires, agosto 1920. And there's a note at the bottom of the page. Los perros fracasados han perdido a su dueño para levantar la pata como una mandolina. Pellejo les ha quedado demasiado grande. Tienen una voz afónica de alcoholista y son capaces de estirarse en un umbral para que los barran junto con la basura. Pedestrian. And this is a poem with a footnote, which is the only one in the whole book with a footnote. At the end of the street, a public building inhales the city's stink. Shadows break their back on the threshold, lie down to fornicate on the sidewalk. One arm fastened to the wall, an extinguished street lamp takes a convex view of people who pass in motor cars. The gaze of passers-by dirties the shop window displays, slims down the legs that dangle beneath the Victoria's hoods. By the curb, a kiosk just swallowed a woman. Passing by, 
an English woman identical to a street lamp, <laughs> a streetcar that's a school on wheels, a ruined dog with a prostitute's eyes who shames us when we look at him and let him go by. Suddenly, with a stroke of his baton, the corner watchman halts every shiver in the city so that you can hear in a single whisper the whisper of all breasts brushing against one another. Buenos Aires, August 1920. And the footnote says, ruined dogs have lost their owners by raising a paw like a mandolin. Their hides are too big for them. They have the hoarse voice of an alcoholist and they're known to stretch out in the doorway to be swept up with the trash. Was it the dog that got you? Well, it's a ruined dog with <laughs> prostitute eyes. I mean, how, how, that's so good, like the greatest right? line ever. And uh, <laughs> I just want to, so my professor, Sister Jean, a Dominican, always said poetry is meant to be read aloud, not to be read. So I, that's why I wanted you to read some. So. Sorry, oh, Jean. Thank you. Like, hey, man, I, she was the one that didn't want to read the poetry. Oh, you didn't didn't what? Read, didn't Don't put that on poetry. me. I did not oh. say that. It's kind of awkward. <laughs> have, you been, have you been to South America, right? Yeah. Have you seen the packs of dogs in like Chile that uh, come up to you with the mournful eyes and then wait until you press the walk light so they can get across the street? No. Where was this Chile in Chile? In uh, Santiago or uh, somewhere else? Punta. Wow. Yeah. Okay. They'll I think up, there needs to be a to poem you. about this. Come up this to is you, wait, and you press the walk light. They all know that you're the person that can get them across the street. So a whole pack of dogs will come and you can cross the street. Do they have prostitute eyes? They did, yes. They were, they were begging. They were looking for that street walk because they're street walkers. <laughs> the city see, dogs see what in I did Detroit there? were a little different. Hey, <laughs> on that note, we're, all, we're, we're actually out of time. But on that, Rachel, thanks so much for being a good Thank sport and being here. Thank thanks, you so Rachel. much for having me. Hey, uh, next time on I-94, it's Preppers with T. Krulos. Next time here at The Dial, it's the other Rachel, Rachel Lewelskin. I promise, oh. Rachel, I won't read your book. I'll read Rachel Galvin's instead. <laughs> <laughs> with that, thanks so much. Give it up for Rachel Galvin. Thank you. Rachel. Thank you so much. Really fun. See you all next time. Awesome. Oh, so much fun. Thanks, <laughs> you guys are great. Thank you. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Rachel Galvin, author of Elevated Threat Level, out now from Green Lantern Press, and News of War, Civilian Poetry from 1936 to 1945, out now from Oxford. This episode was taped in front of a live studio audience at The Dial on August 15th and originally aired on August 18th, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>